Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Go ahead and grab God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews. As you've seen in our video, we are in a series that we've entitled uh, Heroes in Hebrews, and we are using Hebrews chapter 11, which has been dubbed the Hall of Faith, uh, where the writer of Hebrews uh, reminds us of some of the great men and women who were no different than you and I, except that uh, they trusted God and believed that God had great and wonderful things for them. And God is calling us to that same uh, pursuit and that same desire. And we have seen how God has already used, by His grace, uh, two very flawed and and uh, finite individuals like Abel and Enoch. And we learned in the story of Abel uh, that uh, we are to worship God properly and we are to bring to God things uh, that are of the best quality and, and of our heart, that it's not simply uh, just going through the motions. And last week we learned what it meant to walk with God uh, as we learned from John Culver in the life of Enoch who walked and was a righteous man and walked closely with his God. But today we come to another man who is inducted into this hall of faith. And he's a very famous man, is the man named Noah. And of course, we know that while Noah did worship right, and while Noah did, it says, in fact, walk with God, it is his working uh, for God is what seemingly uh, he is commended for. And we're going to learn that true and living faith uh, needs to be worked out and, and be done in action. That it's not simply something that happens in our head or our heart. Heart, uh, but it's done indeed. And so this morning we're going to look at a very famous story of Noah and the building of his ark. And, and we're going to look especially at the faith that allowed this man uh, to do this work. And so I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 7. Uh, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, where we get the fuller uh, story of Noah and the ark. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 starting in verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and uh, we are a people who come from a myriad of places this week. For some, this has been a week that has knocked our socks off in a good way. Everything's gone right, Lord. Things at home, things at work, things in our community. Seemingly, everything is in a proper place. And for those that are there this morning, Lord, I pray that they would rejoice in all the good you've brought them. Lord, I pray that they would remember that uh, these good moments at times can be few and far between, and so to enjoy them and enjoy the comfort they bring. But Lord, I also know that there are some here this morning whose week has been very, very difficult, where it seems that instead of good, there's been calamity where there's not been security, where there's anxiety and fear and trepidation of, of the days to come. And Lord, I pray for those that find themselves this morning in that storm, that they would be reminded that you are the God of the storm, that you are the one who tells us that when we trust in you, you as our anchor holds 
and that we are secure in your hand. Lord, we come to a a man in the scriptures who seemingly is larger than life, whose story, Lord, stretches our minds and our imaginations even, Lord. And yet we know, because your son said so, that this Noah was a real and true man, and that he built a real and true ark. And he saved his family from the calamity that was going to befall the world. But Lord, most importantly today, we see the faith of a sinful, broken man like Noah, which you used to do great things. And I pray, Lord, as we learn about him and as we see him model out his faith in you, that we might take that model and make it an example for us to follow. Lord, as he imitates you, I pray that we might imitate him And in doing so, we may honor you with the faith that we have. Though you may not call us to build a great ark, you've called us to great and mighty things. And we need your faith to be able to accomplish what you have for us. So Lord, as you have done in the life of Noah, do in the life of us by allowing us to do great things for you and for your glory and for our good. We love you and give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, In the early 90s, a war broke out, uh, but it's not a war that you would think of. You see, this war was not fought with troops, but trucks. It was a war that was not fought with artillery, but advertising. It was a war uh, between the three major automakers here in the United States, Dodge, Chevy, and Ford. And the question was, is the largest increase of automobile purchases were that of trucks. America once again fell in love with the pickup truck. And they wanted a truck that they knew was reliable, a truck that they knew was strong, a truck that you could throw the world at and it would just keep going. And the marketers of each of the auto firms had no problem using their competition in their commercials. But Ford, seemingly getting the upper hand in the marketing fight, came up with a slogan that seemingly would win the day. They said that their trucks were built Ford tough. And they did this whole advertising uh, scheme where they wanted to use their competition and show how poor their competition was at accomplishing the things that pickup truck owners all around the United States would want. One of my favorite commercials that the Ford Motor Company came up with was a tug of war between a Dodge Ram truck and a Chevy Silverado truck. And they've got this great chain hooked up to the back of each of the trucks and they're pulling and they're gunning it and and it's going back and forth and it's nobody's winning it's a stalemate until a Ford truck rolls in and this big burly guy comes in and he hooks from his Ford truck the chain that's connected the two other trucks together and then in the next scene you see the Ford truck barreling down the road with the Chevy and the Dodge following behind it and then this very husky burly voice that I covet each and every day says you want a truck that's built Ford tough Every guy in America wanted to buy a truck, and they wanted a voice like that guy, right? You see, the truck makers never talk about the air conditioning. They never talk about the interior. They don't talk about the navigation system. They don't talk about the nice radio in it. 
when they advertise for trucks, they throw tons of boulders in the back end of it, right? Then they hook a battleship up to the truck, and they show it pulling it down the interstate. And then if that's not enough, they show said truck and said battleship and said boulders in the back of the truck climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, showing you that whatever you throw at this truck, it will last, It will be able to address everything that you throw its way. As Christ followers, deep down inside in our lives, since we have given our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we want to know that our faith is that tough. We want to know that when things come our way, that our faith will be able to supersede anything that comes its way. Whether we're a trial or tribulation or peril or fear or anxiety, whether in the worst of temptations or the worst of tribulations, that our faith will stand strong. Well, the Bible says that we should be pursuing that kind of faith, that God has given us the ability to have mountain-moving faith. And he says that that faith is, is found in a little mustard seed, and yet it can move mountains. We are told that when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, no matter our circumstances, the Apostle Paul calls us more than conquerors. You see, when we put our faith and trust in God, God, through us, does great things. But the question we have to ask this morning is, do we have that kind of faith? Do we have a kind of faith that doesn't wither in the storm? That doesn't lose its power and its pizzazz when trouble comes? Far too many Christians today live lives of lackluster faith. They're not tough faith. They're not faith that will weather the storms of life. It is a fair weather kind of faith, which is really no faith at all. I was reminded of this in a conversation that I had with Mike Fatu, who has been in the hospital and and battling cancer. And I asked him, Mike, how can I be praying for you? You're going through a real hard struggle right now. And God bless him. And what a wonderful man of faith he is. He says, pray that I will be faithful. Pray that I will exhibit faith. That's tough faith. That's a faith that can move mountains. Oh, it's not easy, as we're going to learn in the example of Noah, but tough faith is what God wants us to have. Not afford tough faith, a faith that I would like to say is built God tough, because God wants to give us, by His grace, a tough, enduring faith. And to do so, the writer of Hebrews gives us this incredible example, Noah and the building of an ark. Now, the story of Noah is near and dear to my heart. I love the character of Noah, the man Noah, and I named my first son Noah. And, and, and there's so many incredible applications that come from this. But a couple of things I want to share with you before I get to Noah's tough faith is a couple of things that we need to understand as a body. And just write these somewhere so you have them as way of remembrance in your outline. First of all, we need to understand and we need to be reminded that Noah holds a place historically 
in our world. Now, when we move farther and farther away from Jesus into the Old Testament, there's a tendency, even amongst Christians, to start thinking that these stories are fables, that these stories are made up. I mean, let's be honest. A man who's hundreds of years old hears from God that there's going to be a flood when it's never rained before, and for 120 years he builds a boat that's bigger than a football field, three stories tall, and he's going to build this thing where he's going to have all of the animals come at one central point and enter into the ark so that they can be saved. I mean, really... That's a pretty big tale. But I want to remind you this morning that this story and the man Noah isn't just a chief character in biblical history, but in almost every ancient civilization, the story of Noah and the flood come up. Egyptian history tells us of Noah and the ark. Akkadian history tells us of Noah and the ark. Sumerian history tells us of Noah and the ark. The epic Babylonian story, Gilgamesh, speaks of Noah and the ark. Noah does not just play a part in biblical history. He plays a part in history, whether you believe in the Bible or not. And they all believed that story to be true. And yet they did not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they believed in the story of Noah. So he holds a place historically. But I want you to know the story of Noah and the ark holds its place for us theologically. And that is there are beliefs and and themes in this story that are so important for us as Christians to understand. First of all, in the story of Noah and the ark, we will see, as we'll address here in a moment, the wickedness of man. The depravity of man, the sinfulness of man. We will learn that the world that Noah lived in was incredibly depraved. And we are reminded that we too are depraved. That we are no different than the people that came before us. Though they may not have our technology and our unique temptations of the 21st century, they themselves found uh, their culture and their life steeped in sin. We see the uh, patience of God. God comes to a place where he's so tired of man's rebellion, so tired of man's sin, that he literally says, I regret that I made man. Some parents have thought that from time to time. Where we want to just pull our hair out and just so frustrated maybe with the way our children have responded in disobedience to us. We're just like, what was the use And God says, I regret that I created man. And yet God gives 120 years for man to come to repentance. Man, uh, God uses a man named Noah to be a preacher of righteousness to the world around him. So we see the depravity of man. We see the patience of God. We see the judgment of God. God says, I'm going to destroy the world. And the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God is seen that 120 years later, that reality becomes true. It becomes real. But we see the grace of God as well. 
We'll see in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Not because of something Noah did or because of how well he built the ark. This is before Noah has done anything. Noah finds favor. And it's a reminder that we too as sinful, broken people under the judgment of God can find favor by a holy God. And then we see the deliverance of God. Noah would one day get on that ark. And God's promise would be true that a deliverer would come and it would keep him safe and sound from the coming judgment. And we are reminded what a beautiful picture that not a uh, wooden boat is going to save us in the impending judgment that is to come, but a greater ark of greater measure, Jesus Christ has come so that we might cling to him and in doing so we might be delivered from the coming judgment that is to come. What an amazing story of history. One other thing that I would want to share with you is that uh, Noah holds a place not only historically and theologically, but he also holds a place ecologically. And and this has gotten very, very um, politically driven. But let's just be honest, wherever you're at in the whole uh, issue of climate change and and man-made ramifications of of climate change that have become so involved in our politics, can we not stop as Christians and say the story of Noah and the ark, the reality of God and what he did on that ark reminds us that God loves his creation? God could have vaporized this creation, but he doesn't. He starts afresh, he starts anew, a washing takes place, but he cares for the animals. He could have obliterated all the animals, but he doesn't. He cares for them. He cares for the seeds of the, of the world, and he made sure that everything would, would be placed back in order. And surely, should that not move us as Christians to care for our world that God has given us? To care for uh, the plant and animal life. Now, we can go to far extremes, all right? And let's be honest, I cook pork chops for a living, Okay. But we need to recognize that God loves this creation and so should we. And God has given us clear parameters how to deal with plant life, animal life, and we need to not scoff at that, but we need to look at stories like Noah and the Ark and recognize that we alone are not the only ones that God has a relationship with. While our relationship is supreme of all creatures on the earth, we know that even the rocks want to cry out in worship towards God. And so... Noah holds a place historically, theologically, and even ecologically that should stop us and be reminded of the greatness of this man and his life. Now, what we're focused in on this summer is the faith of these men and these women. And I want to spend the rest of my time focusing on the faith of Noah because I want our church to be filled with people that have a Noah tough faith, a faith that is able to stand and weather all the things that come its way. Now, right away, when we come to a story like Noah and the Ark, we get this Pollyanna uh, thought of what Noah's life must have been like. And right away, we put Noah in the middle of Mayberry. 
everything's great. Everything's perfect. The sun's always shining. There's not a bad thing happening. Everybody loves God. And so how really hard was it for Noah to experience and to exhibit a tough faith? And, and why we do that is, is it makes it real easy for us to say, well, sure was easy for Noah. He didn't live in the world that I did. Well, I want to show you this morning that a tough faith, first of all, engages a troubled culture. Write that down. A tough faith engages a troubled culture. I want you to turn, if you haven't yet, to the book of Genesis, way back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6. Now, we've heard what the writer of Hebrews has said, but he gives us one verse for a man's life that spanned hundreds of years. One verse that spans 120 years of Noah building an ark. In one verse, we get the total destruction of humanity and wildlife in a deluge of a flood, and he gives us nothing else. Why? Because I believe the writer of Hebrews, the recipients of this letter, know full well where to find the rest of the story. And we move to Genesis chapter 6 to find that out. So notice what Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says. That's where I want to start. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, it wasn't Mayberry. It wasn't leave it to beaver. It wasn't uh, a, a pristine world that Noah lived in. In fact, uh, one scholar put it this way. Genesis chapter 6 is the worst picture that is ever given by God regarding any generation of human history. Noah lived in the worst of times, not the best of times. And yet, amidst the worst of times, Noah's faith is commended because he lived a tough faith. Well, why was it tough? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that he lived in a culture of rampant sin. He lived in a culture of rampant sin. Moses tells us that God says that every inclination of the thoughts of the heart of man was to do evil continually. That means, if we take God at his word, that man or God who can understand and know the hearts and thoughts and inclinations of a man, look down at humanity and every individual with every thought they had was bent towards evil, not good. That's not a life or a place I want to live where everybody is living for themselves, where selfish desires and selfish wants cause you to hurt, maim, kill, destroy anyone or anything that gets in your way. God says this is happening on a continual basis. 
That word continually gives the picture that it's happening over and over and over and over again. It never ends. It never stops. These people were thinking up evil practices all the time. They did it while eating. They did it while sleeping. They daydreamed about it. They wanted to do evil. Now, I want you to know this morning that we too live in a world where sin is rampant. But let's be honest. Not every thought or the inclination of the heart is to do evil in the world. I can tell you right now that when God looks down at humanity, he is not seeing that. And here's one of the reasons why. Imagine this. There are millions of Christians who are bright and shining lights in this world today. That's true here in America. And it's true all over the world. We have wonderful ministry partners who have vibrant ministries all over the world. And they are shining brightly for the cause of Jesus Christ. During Noah's day, there was one light, Noah. Now, I know some of you are the only Christian in your home, or the only Christian in your extended family, or the only Christian in your workplace, or the only Christian in your school, and you recognize the isolation. You recognize... Uh, the loneliness that comes that you are the only person who believes the way you do, worships the way you do, has priorities set up the way you do. You, you're different than everyone else. But, but here's the thing. There are still Christians around you. You get to come to a church where it's full of Christians. You, you are part of a small group where there are Christians. Imagine Noah. He's the only person on the earth who believes the way he does. He's the only one who's living by faith, not by sight. And so Noah is isolated, and he lives in a world of rampant sin, even darker and more evil than we could ever imagine. Now, the Bible does say that one day that our world will be like that of the days of Noah, but seemingly we are not there yet. There was also a culture of riotous violence, Notice in verses 9 through 13. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now let's stop there. Amidst rampant sin and violence, it tells us that Noah was blameless and righteous. And right away we hear blameless and we think perfect. We think without any issues. Well, we know that's not true because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's not a parenthesis after that that says, except for Noah. The only one who is without sin, who's walked this earth, is Jesus Christ. And so Noah was a flawed man. He was a broken man. In fact, later after the flood, in a time of weakness, Noah embarrasses himself when he's drunk. And so we know Noah not to be a perfect man. So why would God say he's blameless? That phrase blameless literally means uncontaminated by the world around him. Which is a great question for us this morning, is how contaminated are we by the influences and the activities of the world around us? Noah found a way to live out his faith in a depraved world without allowing that rampant sin to infect him. And we too are called to that. God does not demand that we be 
perfect in the same way Jesus was perfect. What God demands is that we stay unstained, uncontaminated from the world around us. One way that we can do it is by not living out violent lives. So he goes on, and he says in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Twice in that phrase, we are told that the earth was filled with violence. And remember, when we see something that is repeated in a text twice or three times, we need to stop and recognize that the chief sin of the world that Noah lived in wasn't issues of pride or issues of lying or, or cheating per se, But seemingly, Moses tees up this idea that the culture was a violent culture. It was a culture uh, that seemingly had fallen into line with their forefather, Cain. This isn't too long since the time of Cain. Only maybe at this point, ten generations have gone by since the time of Cain and Abel. Now, you would have thought that the ancestors of Cain would have learned from their forefathers' sin. That the great burden of taking one's life or maiming someone or or harming someone was more than, as Cain said, he could bear. But instead of learning a valuable truth from history, they follow in step with that. And they hurt one another. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly how this is lived out. It doesn't tell us exactly, but we don't need to be too creative to recognize and know that a world of violence is a world that brings death and destruction to humanity against one another, brother against brother, sister against sister, friend, enemy, hurting and seeking to harm one another. And we need to recognize that Noah lived during this time where Noah had to always wonder, am I safe? Now listen, here in the western suburbs of Chicago, our fear level is probably pretty low. But we live in the shadows of the most violent city in all of our whole nation where dozens of people will be shot again this weekend, where great harm will be done, where violence will be lived out on the streets of Chicago. And we need to recognize that's a lot closer to home than we want. But what breeds that? What what causes that? Our, Our newscasts are filled with stories of violence against one another. We live in a world of violence. And and I just want to say very pastorally, and I get, again, I'm walking on some political eggshells here. We live in a society where it is altogether too common for stories to be told of men and women who take deadly weapons into their hands and seek to maim and harm and even kill as many people as possible. This disease has infected our children where our young people are now heading into their schools and mowing down their classmates. 
Now, I know there's a lot of debate that can go into this, but can we just stop and agree that we live in an altogether too violent world? And one of the reasons why this violence takes place is because we celebrate violence. Some of the biggest blockbuster movies are filled with violence. Our television is filled with violence. Our kids are playing video games filled with violence. In fact, there's a petition right now to try to stop a, a, um, a shooting game, video game, that takes place in a school where you're gunning down your own teachers and, and classmates. In a world that celebrates that kind of violence, we would be moronic not to think that that's not going to be espoused into real life. And as pagans, I get why they would be violent. They have no other reason but to be violent. Because they're their own God. They're going to do everything by their own uh, desires and wants. Anybody gets in their way, they're going to knock them down. But as people who have been uh, taken, uh, their sins been taken from them by the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ, where we have been called as followers of Jesus Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves, should we? Certainly we should not be celebrating the violence. And I preach that more to myself than I do to anyone else. We are an altogether too violent of a people. And instead of being filled with faith, we, like the days of Noah, are filled with violence. Noah shows us that we can live an upright and holy life even amidst the most violent of cultures. One final element of the culture that is important was it was a culture of religious indifference. A culture of religious indifference. We are told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We are told that it took 120 years for Noah to build the ark. So for 120 years, Noah is, is uh, hammering away at the ark. He's building the ark. And no doubt, after he gets done working on the ark, he goes to the local watering hole, the local restaurant, and he goes and sits down. He's got his wife with him, and neighbor Joe comes up to him and says, Hey! No, what are you doing over there? I see you're busy. You're up early. You don't go to bed until late. What are you working on? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? It's a big boat. Noah, newsflash, no water around us. Well, God told me it's going to rain. Noah, newsflash, it's never rained before. Well, my God doesn't tell lies. And my God says that the end of the world is coming. And judgment's going to befall the earth. And, and because of that, I've been given the express command to build this ark so I can save anybody who will believe and trust in God. You in? And we are told after 120 years of this blameless and righteous man preaching the good news of God's deliverance, guess how many people accept God? Zero. Now, as... A pastor, I always found humorous that a righteous man like Noah who preaches for 120 years the impending doom of God, zero people believe in the message, okay? Whereas Jonah, who doesn't want to preach for God, Jonah who runs away from God, Jonah, who's given a message that impending judgment is coming, fights God, is hesitant. God's got to do a whole bunch of stuff to get him where he needs him. Jonah preaches an eight-word message, and everybody believes. 
God finds our evangelistic attempts humorous at times. And some of us need to recognize that we live Noah experiences. We share our faith, we, we live out our faith, and nobody believes. Nobody believed Noah for 120 years. I know that you've been sharing the gospel with that friend for a long time, but I'm here to contend you've not done it for 120 years. Noah lived in a bad time. Now, here's the great thing about Noah. Amidst all of this, Noah doesn't hide himself from his culture. Noah doesn't make the ark a top secret thing. Noah builds it. Noah doesn't say, hey, let's get out of here and head somewhere where our boys won't be impacted by this terrible world. And I just want to remind us as Christians, because in the evangelical world, there is a growing movement that because of the sin that seemingly gets more and more rampant in our world, because it's more difficult to be an outspoken Christian in the world we live in, it is really, really easy to allow the tendency for us to withdraw instead of engage. And some of us are thinking, you know what? It's time to move. Let's go find a cabin in Montana and let's never be seen or heard from again. And we won't be impacted by the culture. We won't be impacted by the sinners around us. We'll just have a great time with God. I want you to know that each and every one of these men and women engaged culture and took it on head on by the grace and power of God. And we need to do the same thing as well. God doesn't want us to withdraw from this world. He wants us to engage it. But engaging might mean scoffing. It might mean being mocked. It may mean losing opportunities. Noah, no doubt, was the laughing stock of his community. When they saw him in the supermarket, they laughed. They made jokes. They mocked him whenever he came their way. And that may be true for us as well, but God wants us to engage. Well, how is it that this man, amidst such difficulty, engaged? Let's look at a couple things. Number one, he exercised a daily commitment to God. He exercised a daily commitment to God. With all of that as a backdrop, God comes in this sinful world and he comes to Noah and he says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. I want you to build an ark. And he's very, very specific. And time doesn't allow me to go through all the different things. I want you to build it with gopher wood. I want you to use this as the sealant. This is how I want it to be built. This is the length. This is the height. This is the width. Most scholars tell us this is larger than a football field. Uh, probably about as high as a football stadium. This is a big place. It's a big boat. And we are told, we are told in uh, verse 22 of chapter 6, and it's said twice like this, but let's just look at the one here in verse 22. Noah did this. After everything was told of him, he did all that God commanded him. He did it. He had heard, and we don't know how God told him. We don't know, and in fact, in the movie Noah, um, Noah sees it in the dream and experiences this very vivid dream and he hears the voice of God and he's compelled by that dream. We don't know if he heard it uh, verbally from God, if it was in a dream, how he heard it, but he heard God and he did everything that God told him to. Which begs the question this morning, 
we've heard from God, how well are we doing at doing all that God has commanded us? And right away I look at Noah's life and and I know it cannot be said of me that I do everything that God has commanded me to do. So I want to know how did Noah get there? Well, number one, we need to know he was instructed by God. He was instructed by God. He did what God told him to. And I just want to remind us this morning that we have been instructed by God. And one of the things that we need to recognize, God told Noah, I want you to do something so radically different that you are going to seemingly be the only person who's going to live this kind of life in your culture. And Noah said, no problem, I'll do it. Never do we hear of grumbling, never do we hear of complaining, never do we hear him coveting the life of other people. He just does what God calls him to. And I just want to remind us that God, through his word, has instructed us to live very, very different lives in the world around us. We are to love differently. We are to be wedded in different ways than the world says. We are to parent differently. We are to care for one another differently. We are to have different priorities than the world. We are called to uh, involve ourselves in different activities than the world says. We are a very, very peculiar people. And unlike Noah, far too many of us, and me included, complain and grumble and, and, and despise the life God has given us. Noah shows us, God, you've told me to do something. I will live it out. He was instructed by God. We are as well. Number two, this daily commitment of Noah involved his whole being. In in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we are told that he was warned by God. God warns him, I'm going to destroy the world. I want you to build an ark. You're going to save your family. You're going to save the wildlife of the world. And you're going to be the new Adam, if you will, to start this thing all over again. Now, right away, we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that he hears it. It gets locked into his head. He knows that there's a God. He's communicating with a God. He is having a conversation, and God has given him propositional information, propositional truth. This is what I'm going to do. Noah acknowledges, I heard from God. That's not faith. That's the faith of demons. A faith of demons stops in the head. I know there's a God. I know that God is saying stuff, but I'm going to live my life in opposition from it. Noah's faith is commended because it wasn't just in the head. It moved to the heart. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says, in reverent fear. He's gripped by fear. What is he gripped by? I know there's a God. He's a huge God. He's the creator God. He's the God that could destroy us in a minute. And in 120 years, he's going to destroy this earth. And that scares me. Because I know my God is a faithful and true God. He's going to do this. And I'm in fear. I'm in fear of all the people that are going to die. I'm in fear that I'm the only one who's going to be left. I'm in fear that I'm not equal to the task that God has given me. He is filled with fear. So the message of God goes from his head to his heart. Right now, I hope that you've heard from God in your head. And right now, I'm hoping... That God is gripping your heart. That you in holy fear are saying, God has called me to live this way. 
And I'm not doing that right now. And I've got a holy God whom I serve. And out of reverent fear, I'm going to do what God says. Now, here's the problem. That is a dead faith. Not a demonic faith. A dead faith. People hear the word of God. They feel it in their heart. They're compelled by things. They, they take it to heart. But the book of James says that kind of faith is dead. It's not doing anything. Noah's faith is commended not because it is a faith that's in his head, but it's a faith that's in his head <clears throat> and his heart, but not only his head and his heart, but his hands. He hears from God. He's gripped by the knowledge that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. And what does he do? He puts his faith in practice and he starts building the boats. And he builds it not one day, not two days, but 365 days for 120 years. If I saw that mathematical equation on a math test, I wouldn't know the answer, but I would say it's a really, really big number. That's a long time. And he's faithful to the end. We know there's no leaks in the boat. The boat doesn't sink. It doesn't capsize. We know Noah was faithful. What a reminder for us. We hear the word of the Lord. We acknowledge it in our head. We think about it. Man, sure, need to do that. That needs to happen. But the question is, will it get to the rest of your body? Will you live not a demonic, not a dead faith, but a dynamic faith that moves? God's told me to do something. I'm gripped with reverent fear that I need to do it, and I leave the parking lot of Village Bible Church not with just the intention of doing it, but the follow-through. That is what I pray for you every Sunday, that you would not just believe what I say, but you would turn around and do it for the glory of God and for your good. It involves our whole being. Notice it also, this kind of faith impacts those closest to us. We are told that through his preaching, no one comes to God. But we know that Noah saves his family. So Noah has somehow compelled his family to buy into what God has said. Noah, his wife, his three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three daughter or their three wives, Moses and his wife's daughter-in-laws, are all saved because of Noah's faith. Noah's faith has a direct correlation to the care and safety of those closest to him. And I just want to remind us, especially as parents, that your faith has an impact on your relationships of those closest to you, probably your spouse and your children. And I want to remind you that just as Noah each and every day got up and built that ark, his children would come and say, hey, Dad, why do you keep building that? Because God told me to. And God's a true God, and God is a holy God, and God is a righteous God. And when God says something, he means what he says, and he says what he means, and therefore I'm going to do it. And that had a ripple effect because it was uh, Noah's family that helped build the ark. It was Noah's family who helped fill the ark. It was Noah's family that was saved by the ark. And it is my prayer for my own life and the life of my three sons that they will see on a daily basis their dad get up 
And I'm not building an ark because the Lord knows I'm terrible with woodworking. But that they would see me building a faith-filled life that impacts them. Dad, what are you going to go do today? I'm going to go honor the Lord. I'm going to follow his commands. And I want you, son, to come along with me in this journey. Because what I've come to learn in my 42 years on this earth is that God is an awesome God that we get to relate to. And I'm going to walk with God. Will you walk with me? And some of you parents need to do a far better job. I need to do a far better job of instructing my children and those closest to me of the impact my God has had on me and hopefully on them. We are told this kind of faith indicts the world. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says that Noah's actions condemned the world. Now, some of my outspoken friends will say right away, Noah went around condemning people, just telling everybody they're going to hell. You're going to die in 120 years. Yippee, you know. Nanana boo boo. Hope you can swim. But he doesn't do that. What indicts the world is Noah building the ark. It is Noah's tangible expression of his faith, this big boat that indicts the world. Because at some point, the rain started to come, and they had mocked Noah. And that mocking turned to pleading, let us on the boat. Please save us from this calamity. The scorning and the mocking and the jeering came to an end when the waters began to flow. And I want to ask this question. It's the most important question of the entire sermon. And it's a question that I've been wrestling with the last couple weeks as I've prepared for this message. What ark are you building? What tangible expression of your faith does the world see? What tangible expression of your faith in God indicts the world's? What are you doing in response to God's favor that causes the world to stop and take notice? It may mean bad notice, meaning they may mock you for it, but what are you building in your life where people will say, why do they do that? Can I tell you, you indict the world? Listen, you indict the world when you leave on a Sunday morning and head here. You know your neighbors are watching? Well, there they go again. Why are they going to church? What a waste of time. They could mow their grass. They really could use it. Their car could be washed. Why are they doing that? Why are these people going to Africa? Why would they do that? Why would they go to Poland? Who cares about Africa and Poland? Man, it's about us. Why would they go and visit orphanages? And Why would they go build churches for people they don't know? Why would they do that? Why would they give to God? Why would they serve God in that way? What is your tangible expression of faith that is indicting the world that you believe in God? And here's the crazy thing, that you know an impending judgment is at hand. Do you know how close we are to the life of Noah? An impending judgment is coming. And we are to be preachers of righteousness to that end. One final thing, and it's supposed to be very short, and we're short on time, so let's just close with this. 
I want you to recognize within this tough faith is the calling to enjoy the compassion of God. To enjoy the compassion of God. For 120 years, Noah builds the ark, and when the promise of God comes, Noah and his family are saved. And they receive an inheritance, Hebrews 11.7 says. The inheritance isn't riches. The inheritance isn't worldly acclaim and, 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 and uh, popularity. The world's gone. It's been destroyed. They get a second chance, a fresh and new start. And I want to remind you, because of the compassion of God, you and I have been given a fresh start, a second chance. And because of that, we get to do a couple things. Number one, and I'll say these very quickly. Number one, we get to experience God's grace. Like Noah, you and I get to enjoy the favor of God. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And I want you to know today, you have as well. God loves you, and God has placed his hands of grace on you, and we should bask in that, that we are a part of the family of God, not built for destruction, but built to spend eternity with God. Never forget that. Number two, we get to exhibit our faith each and every day. I know that seems like a trial, but what a great opportunity. Tomorrow morning, you get to get up and you get to show the world that you're in love with God and that you, in concert with God, are building something so that the world may see that you are a different person impacted by the God of the universe and in a relationship with Him. How are you going to exhibit that in the days to come? And finally, you get to, like Noah, embrace a hope-filled promise Listen very carefully. Judgment is coming. While the Lord has promised with the sign of a rainbow He will never flood this world again and destroy it that way, the Bible says a day is coming when fire will come and destroy this world. And we as followers of Jesus Christ are reminded that we are not subject to God's wrath in that way but that we have been promised a deliverer. And that deliverer was not a wooden boat, but a man, a God-man named Jesus Christ. And if you, by faith, will believe and cling to Jesus Christ as Noah cling to that ark, God says he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Will you be like the people in the days of Noah who scoffed and mocked? Or will you, like Noah and his family, cling to the promise of God and when the storm comes, be found safe in the arms of God? God wants us to have a tough faith. It's not easy. Life is a long time. But I'm here to believe that when it was all said and done, Noah said it was worth the price. And I think when we get to eternity, we will agree.